Would you turn in your Bibles to Revelation 22? At the end of your Bibles, we'll be reading verses 6 through 21. This is the epilogue of the book of Revelation. Verses 6 through the end. And it says this. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you. And your brothers, the prophets, who with those who keep the words of this book, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoers still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from them, from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, make your name holy in this time and place. Holy Spirit, give us ears to hear and hearts to believe. Oh Jesus, speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. Amen. Today we close our Fellowship of the Spirit sword reading plan as we've read through and preach through the whole New Testament together this year. And tomorrow we begin our reading and preaching plan through the Old Testament, which is called Honey, Hammer, and Hope. Each of these images taken from the Old Testament in which they were describing the Word of God. And together they're a summary of how we are to think of the Word of God as sweet and as strong and as saving, as delightful and as dangerous and as delivering. 
These three points are so key that they're even found in this chapter. I didn't plan it that way. I just looked through the week's chapters in our reading plan as we've done all year, and sure enough, all three points are here in chapter 22 of Revelation. God's word is honey, hammer, and hope. Let me show you quickly before we dive in so you can believe me. God's word is honey. Look at verses 6 through 7. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirit of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. Blessed means happy, thriving, experiencing goodness that makes you good. It's sweetness. Now look down a bit and see his word is hammer. Verses 18 through 19. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. It is weighty, you see that, and powerful and to be taken seriously. And the next verse shows us his word is our hope. Verse 20 says, He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Notice how testify speaks to his word and his coming soon speaks to our hope. So I don't believe I'm forcing this message on this text. That's important to me. I believe this is how we should regard God's word. That, and the last word in his word directs us to do so. These three images of honey, hammer, and hope summarize how God wants us to think of his word. They, they, there are people out there who think people like me make too much of God's word. Elevate the Bible too highly when we really ought to be focusing on Jesus. And that's what I call a false dichotomy. That's like saying, listen to what I'm saying. Don't, don't listen to what I'm saying. Listen to me. It doesn't make any sense. And I want to take a moment to show you how much these two things are united. Christ and the word of God. As, as we reflected on the theological truths of Christmas uh, last week, uh, the last week that we had of school at Bethel Academy, I, the text I chose for chapel was John 1, 9 through 14. And verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. This is how the Holy Spirit inspired John to write about the Incarnation. And Hebrews says something similar. He says in, the, in, in chapter 1, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Christ identifies with the Word of God. He is God's Word to us. And this may, at first, maybe seem to run counter to my argument until you realize how we know about him. Christ is God's word to us, but that word is communicated through the scriptures. This is exactly what Jesus himself said when he was raised from the dead and he appeared to his disciples. One of the first things he did was to do a Bible study with them, showing them how all scripture points to him. Luke 24, 4, 24 through 26 says, he says to two of his disciples on the road to Emmaus, O oh, foolish ones, how and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures things concerning himself. 
And it wasn't just those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. He later in that same chapter appeared to the rest of his disciples and did something similar. It says that he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And this is important for us to see as we head into a year of reading and preaching from the Old Testament, Jesus was showing his disciples how the entire Old Testament points to him. This is why we love scripture. Not just because we love old books, but because we love Jesus. And it is dripping with his glory like honey from the honeycomb. And I have never met a mature or wise Christian who didn't have a passion for God's word. The most godly people I know cherish his word. They take it seriously. They lean on it, are upheld by its promises. Because we need a daily plunge into the God-rich waters of the Bible. We live and swim in the cloudy, murky waters of this world all day where God's truth is suppressed, his presence is ignored, his honor is forsaken, And we become out of touch with reality if we do not dive into reality at least once a day. The Bible shows us what is really real. God is the ultimate reality. The scriptures are are tethered to that reality. In a world increasingly untethered from reality, we must lash ourselves to the mast, so to speak. Because more and more Christians are also becoming untethered from reality. And it shows. If you do not have a robust relationship with the scriptures, it is not a state that you should be content with. And if you do have a robust relationship with the Bible, and I know many of you do, you, you don't just read it, you really pay attention to it. And you think about it, you internalize it, and try to apply it to how you view the world, how you act in the world. You let it fill your prayers and your ambitions and your relationship to your God and your neighbors. And what we're saying with the church-wide plan is don't just be self-satisfied. Bring your brothers and sisters with you. Join us in this plan this year and encourage others to join you. Talk to them about it. Ask them about it. Encourage them to keep going or to jump back in. We should all have a holy ambition to be men and women of the word. And if you do not want that to be a defining mark of your life, then you do not yet have a high enough view of the scriptures, of the word of God. We are stewards of an incredible treasure. And too many of us are burying it in the ground for safekeeping. Let us be good stewards of this fortune of truth at our fingertips. It is so, so good, and it is so mighty, and it is so full of hope. So let's turn to our text and look at each of those points in this book of Revelation. First, it is sweeter than honey. Verses 6 and 7 say, And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And, And the Lord, the God of the Spirit of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. 
Notice how the angel identifies Christ as the God of who? Of the prophets. Again, showing his close connection with the word. He is the God of the prophets. And if you know your scriptures, you can see throughout the book of Revelation how it is filled to the brim with allusions to Old Testament prophecies. And then he says these words are trustworthy and true. Now, everything in this epilogue that talks about the word is applied directly to the book of Revelation. But in each of these instances that we will study, what is true of the part is true of the whole as well. So yes, he's talking directly about this revelation, this letter to the seven churches, but the angel is talking about it as scripture, which means that these things apply to all scripture. He says these words are trustworthy and true. These words of God revealed to John, like all the words of scripture, are trustworthy and true. We can stake our lives on them. They are worth believing. They are worthy of our trust. Your decrees are very trustworthy, says Psalm 93. The works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy, Psalm 111. This is the praise of the Psalms. And it's the call of the apostle. In Titus 1.9, he says to his apprentice, hold firm to the trustworthy word. Today we are in what some have called a trust crisis. There's a deterioration of trust throughout our society. We no longer know how to know things for certain. Whose authority to trust? Where to find truth? And in the midst of this turbulent crisis of trust stands the word of God like a mountain among mice. They scurry around frantic and short-lived while it stands ancient and immovable. We can climb it and look over the landscape with clarity and confidence and perspective. We take shelter in it. It is trustworthy, which is a breath of fresh mountain air in this small gridden world of falsehood. God has spoken and his word is true. So the angel goes on to give a blessing regarding this word. It's the sixth blessing of the book of Revelation. If you want to know the others, go find them yourself. Look for the word blessed. But here he says blessed in the second half of verse 7. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. That word blessed is an important word in scripture. It means happy. But more than what we generally mean when we say happy. But if you don't understand that happiness is a part of it, then you don't get it. It means being made happy and thriving and living and experiencing true goodness. One of my seminary professors, Dr. Pennington, wrote wrote a book on the Sermon on the Mount, which of course starts with the Beatitudes, where Jesus used the word blessed over and over again. And my professor argues that the Greek word for blessed, makarios, means essentially experiencing the good life, flourishing. Which makes the beatitude, is what makes the beatitude so striking and unexpected, right? Because to say that those who mourn are flourishing, to say that those who are persecuted are living the good life, that's a pretty attention-grabbing way to start a sermon. And so our modern way of using the word is actually pretty spot on because some people say they're hashtag blessed whenever they have a lot of social media followers. And they're saying they're flourishing. They're saying they're living the good life. But what we need to reevaluate is what is the good life? 
And biblically, the good life is the life that is conformed to God's life. And that is why the psalmist loves the law so much. I've mentioned how the psalmist says God's word is sweeter than honey, but listen to what exactly about God's word he says is sweeter than honey. In Psalm 19, the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. So what is so sweet? God's rules. And that's a detail that sounds super foreign to us in our day. At best, we tolerate rules. We don't think of rules as delightful. But there is no biblical warrant for our allergic reaction to rules. God's rules are sweeter than honey and more desirable than much gold. Jesus' confrontation of the fastidious Pharisees are part of our rationale for hating rules. But if you listen carefully to what Jesus says to the Pharisees, you notice that he actually chides them for not keeping enough rules. Listen to Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice and mercy and faithfulness. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. So sure, yeah, you ought to have tithed. You're doing that right, but you also ought to have practiced justice and mercy and faithfulness. These are also my rules. The real question is not whether God's rules are good or bad. Of course they are good. But we have to recognize the right reason for their goodness. The question is, why are they good? They are not good because they can justify us. They can't do that. And if we value them for that, for their justifying power, we will in short notice be disillusioned with their goodness. That was the mistake of the Pharisees. So why are they good? God's rules are good because they reveal the character of God and his good guidance for our lives, his care for us. This is why they're so sweet, because they are a window into his heart and mind, into the heart and mind of our maker and our redeemer. And they are evidence of his caring for us and his leading us as a shepherd who leads us in paths of righteousness for his namesake, making us lie down and green pastures, and leading us beside still waters, and restoring our souls. And so the angel says, blessed is the one who keeps these words. Happy, flourishing. This is why God speaks to us, to bless us. His word is to be cherished as a blessed and valuable gift. But it is also, as Jeremiah said, a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. And he's, of course, speaking of a sledgehammer type hammer rather than a claw hammer for nails. This is a hammer for breaking. And listen to the context of that image in Jeremiah. He says, let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Behold, I am against those who prophesy lying dreams, declares the Lord, and who tell them to lead and and lead my people astray by their lies and their recklessness when I did not send them or charge them. So they do not profit this people at all, declares the Lord. He is charging those who handle his word to do so faithfully, and he contrasts it with handling it recklessly. 
And the epilogue of, of Revelation speaks similarly. Verse 18 and 19 says, I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plague of described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of, this, of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and the holy city, which are described in this book. This curse applies to the contents of the book of Revelation specifically, but as part of scripture, it is, it is true that we, we must, if we must not tamper with this book, we must not tamper with the scripture that came before it, right? Because Moses gave a similar message in Deuteronomy, the last book of the Pentateuch. In fact, he gives it twice and was important to him. Uh, he says in chapter four, you shall not add to the word that I command to you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God that I command you. And then in chapter 12, he says, everything that I command you, you shall be careful to do. You shall not add to it or take from it. Do not add, do not take away. Be careful to do it as it's written. And this warns us from becoming those who Jeremiah confronted, who adjust the contents of scripture to suit themselves. The next verse in that passage of Jeremiah is one of my favorites because I think it's kind of funny with how blunt it is and the, and the turn of phrase. It says, when one of this people or a prophet or a priest asks you, what is the burden of the Lord? You shall say to them, you are the burden and I will cast you off, declares the Lord. He goes on to say, this is because they pervert the words of the living God, the Lord of hosts, our God. God's word is a sledgehammer. And there are a great many things that need breaking in this world. There are arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God that must be destroyed. There are disobedient thoughts that must be taken captive to obey Christ. There are lies and layers of lies that must be shattered. And God's hammer is his word. But must a, a, such a tool must be wielded rightly so easy to wield it wrongly. G.K. Chesterton in his book, Orthodoxy, talked about how orthodoxy, which just means right and, and true belief without going into error and heresy, orthodoxy, he said, is the difficult and, and exciting path because it's easy. It's easy to fall into error. People do it all the time without even trying in all different ways. Listen to how he says it. To have fallen into any of those open traps of error and exaggeration, which fashion after fashion and sect after sect set along the historic path of Christendom, that would indeed have been simple. It's always simple to fall. There are an infinity of angles at which one falls, only one at which one stands. To have fallen into any one of those fads from Gnosticism to Christian science would indeed have been obvious and tame, but to have avoided them all has been one whirling adventure. And in my vision, the heavenly chariot flies thundering through the ages and the dull heresies sprawling and prostrate, the wild truth reeling but erect. He's saying, in other words, heresy is boring. And the true adventure is to stay on the narrow path of orthodoxy and truth. The church armed with the sword of the spirit has fought myriads of battles throughout the ages, parrying heretical blows from the right and the left, struck again and again by fashionable errors, but never struck down. 
And this is why those who cling to the truth are so blessed and so happy, because as Chesterton said elsewhere, the one perfectly divine thing, the one glimpse of God's paradise given on earth, is to fight a losing battle and not lose it. Ask Jeremiah and Isaiah. Ask the Apostle Paul. Ask Athanasius. Ask Martin Luther. The word of God prevails when all the world is against us. The question is whether when the hammer falls, are we with the one swinging it or are we on the stone that is being shattered? And there's a formula to access that joy that Chesterton spoke of. It's the formula that Moses mentioned in Deuteronomy and John laid out for us in Revelation. Everything that God commands you, you shall be careful to do and you shall not add to it or take away from it. Be careful to do it. Don't add Don't take away. In other words, approach his word with reverence as if if it's more right than you. Approach it with awe and faith. Wonder at its power. Respect its authority. Trust its truth and victory. Be humbled under the God who speaks. He's mighty to save, and his word is his weapon. But it is a magical weapon which in the Spirit's hands can slay an enemy while at the same time reviving him as an ally. I'm I'm one to whom this has happened to. I'll never forget it. I'll never take this word for granted. His word is sweet and strong and saving. And this is why it gives us hope. A word, a message cannot be separated from the one speaking it. And that is how this revelation ends. Verse 20 says, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. The testifier is coming. This is our hope. And so John adds, amen, come Lord Jesus. This ought to be our prayer. This hope is is the source of strength to keep his word. Remember back in the beginning of the book, Jesus addressed the seven churches and he had a pattern that he followed with each of those seven addresses. Uh, And so that pattern was threefold. He, He revealed something about himself and then he admonished them or exhorted them and rebuked them. And then he ended it by giving them a message of hope. At the beginning of Advent and the beginning of Revelation, I preached a message about how each beginning revelation where Jesus started each of those addresses by revealing something about himself. He did so differently to each of them and it suited each one of those individual churches and something they needed to see about his glory. Well, the same is true about the closing promises of hope. At the end of his address to each church, he gives them each a specific word of hope. And just as the seven initial attributes were gathered together in the first chapter of Revelation so are the seven hopeful promises gathered here at the final chapter of Revelation. Let me show you. I noticed this when I read verse 16, because Jesus says, what about himself there? Notice the end of it. I am the bright morning star. And if you remember, I remembered when I read that, his message to the church of Thyatira, where he promises them, listen to what he says to that church. He said to that church, the one who conquers and who keeps my word, my works until the end, I will give him the morning star. And now Jesus says, I am the bright morning star. 
So in other words, he's promising them himself. They will have him in his glory. And the rest are here too. In that same verse, he says he is the root and descendant of David. David, the great king. Jesus, by saying he is the great king's descendant and his root, his source, he's saying he is both the divine and human king. And remember what he promised to Laodicea, that the one who conquers, he will grant him to sit on his throne. He is the king, but he's such a king that he wants us to reign with him. He shares that with us, which ought to awe you. It's extraordinary. And then verse 14, we see three more. This, this is the seventh blessing of Revelation, if you're wondering. He says, blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life, that they may enter the city by the gates. And condensed in that blessing are three of the promises to the seven churches. It starts with those who wash their robes, right? And remember, to the church of Sardis, he chastised them for soiling their garments and he promised them the one who conquers will be clothed in white garments. He will make us pure. And he will cleanse us from all that defiles us. And then the second part of that blessing, he says they will have the right to the tree of life, which is exactly what he promised to the church of Ephesus in chapter 2. He said to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He will bring us into his everlasting life. And the final part of that blessing is that they may enter the city by the gates. The city. This is the city that he promised to his beloved church of Philadelphia when he said that the name of his city would be written on them and they would never leave. In verse 12, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. And in light of this incredible, startling truth, he promised the church of Smyrna a most reassuring promise that the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. We who persevere in faith need not fear the coming of Christ. We are free to hope with joyful anticipation. The only imagery that isn't picked up very clearly is the manna that Christ offered to the church of Pergamum. But manna was a provision of food, which Jesus used as a tool, if you remember, uh, to teach about himself. He said, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven, right? Like the manna. And he says that he was the bread of life. And though he doesn't mention bread of life here, he does mention something else of life, doesn't he? Water of life in verse 17. This is the idea of spiritual sustenance in another form. The offer of the free drink of the water of life. Just listen to this beautiful passage in verse 17. The spirit and the bride say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take of the water of life without price. The spirit of God says, come. He's calling you. The bride, meaning the church, says, come. We are calling you. God and his people are inviting all who hear to come. Come and do what? This is Christ's invitation. If you are thirsty, come and drink from the water of life without price. It's free. It's free. Are you thirsty? 
you may drink. Are you craving and searching and wanting something more? Are you unsatisfied in your soul? Are you lost? Are you longing? Are you empty and craving and aching to be filled? You don't need to pay. You just need to come and drink. Receive his life. He is our hope. And what I really want you to notice as we reflect on hoping in the word of God is that along with each and every one of those seven messages of hope to the seven churches, Jesus says the same thing over and over again, like a refrain. Seven times he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. He's saying, do you need hope? Then you need to hear. Hearing is the path to hope. Listening brings light and life. In Psalm 119, the psalmist connects hope to the word of God eight times. Let me read them all to you because I love them. Those who fear you shall see me and rejoice because I have hoped in your word. My soul longs for your salvation. I hope in your word. Uphold me according to your promise that I may live and let me not be put to shame in my hope. And take not the word of truth utterly out of my mouth for my hope is in your rules. You are my hiding place and my shield. I hope in your word. Remember your word to your servant in which you have made me hope. I hope in your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your word. This is not a small or insignificant aspect to God's word. It is a major emphasis. David's confidence and his comfort and his courage and his contentment and his obedience are all found by hoping in God's word. Hope is what gives a person vibrancy and vitality Hope is what really makes a person's life in their own heart and mind more than just a vapor that is here today and gone tomorrow. Hope does not make us too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good. It does the exact opposite. It fills us with the kind of life that can be of most good. A hopeless man is a man of either worldly indulgence or cynicism, either selfish or angry, a discontented fool or a disillusioned crank. But the man of hope in Christ is a free man. One who is never unthankful for the blessings of earth and yet never mistakes them for the ultimate. Through hope, we live in two worlds. One that's to come perfect and pure and permanent. And one that is passing away. And the air from the permanent fills our lungs so that we do not develop the emphysema of the soul that affects so many in this world. To be people of hope, we must keep alive in ourselves the desire for our true home. We must never let it get covered up or cast aside. We must make it the goal of our lives to press on toward that perfect, pure, and permanent home and to help others do the same. Amen. And how do we keep such hope alive? The psalmist knew, we hope in God's word. 
It is that fresh air from our true country which we must breathe in deeply every day. And he who testifies to such things in his word says, surely I am coming soon. We need God's word to regularly remind us of what time it is. From a divine perspective, when everything around us is training us to fix our minds on the present world, we need to hear him say, I am coming soon. And let it fill our hearts with hope. So that with John, we say, amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Holy Father, we thank you for your word and the blessing of it. Open our eyes to behold its wonders. Give us the right tastes to enjoy its sweetness. Humble us to revere and trust its power because it's you that speaks to us in the scriptures. And by your word, you created life. And you still do speak life through your word. So fill us with hope in and through your word in this coming year, in 2024. And with hearts of hope, we pray for Christ to come again. And we pray in his name. Amen.